Bible Quest. This is the Tuesday edition. Where we talk with you about the Bible and its relevance for today, every Tuesday at 2. My name is Justin Doms, and let me invite you to interact with us live. You can use the live chat on YouTube. We'll be watching that throughout our discussion today. But if you have other questions or comments after our discussion or just some things that you'd like for us to discuss from the Bible's point of view, you can contact us anytime on our website at BibleQuest.tv. We want to talk with you about your questions and your concerns and your journey to know the Lord and His Word. Now, today we have with us Scott Smelser. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Justin. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining in. Um, and today, um, our, our session is entitled, uh, This Seems Familiar. Um, or this place seems familiar. So I wanted to talk about the importance of having a, uh, a, a geographical awareness as we study the Bible. Um, and uh, I've got some places in mind I'd like to visit with you, uh, talk through. But I wonder if you have any thoughts about why it might be important to think about geographical locations when we study the Bible. Well, and one reason why it's important, uh, and I'm going to just comment here, particularly like for kids, is to understand we're talking about real places, real events, real people. Yeah. So this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away where you can never verify the facts this thing happened um, or in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. Um, this is something that that happened in real places. Now we can't always nail down where exactly something occurred, uh, but there are there are times where we can point. You know, it was right here in this place where Paul was put on trial, or it was right here um, in this place where uh, Jesus died. You know, there are some places that we can generally say this this is the place. Um, you can been, you can go to Google Earth and go to the. Uh, what am I looking for? The word is ruins of Ephesus. And you can see the theater pretty easily from Google Earth, which is where they were, you know, the greatest Diana, the Ephesians, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and so having those places, you know, it doesn't prove that those things happened, but it does say, hey, this this has a, a realistic setting. Um, now, more than just a realistic setting, um, one of the things that I found helpful is how God God is the author of history. He's you know he had this this word written down, but he also developed a sort of theme throughout time. And um, do you have certain songs that when they come on, uh, it's just it brings up all these memories of events or places or people or uh, it just it's sort of a, a walk down memory lane. Yeah, especially certain times in your life or back in high school or or here or there, different things, yeah. And for me, certain smells, too. Um, there are certain scents. Memory, yeah. Yeah, that, that spark a memory. Um, there's a certain song that comes on and the smell of McDonald's french fries and I am back and I'm eight years old and I have, I'm in Little League Baseball after a win or a loss, unfortunately. Uh, and that's where we would go after the games. So there's certain things that just sort of put you in a certain place or an old girlfriend. Um, and that certain song that comes on, you're like, whoa, that just, you know, rush of memories and good or bad. And I think there are geographical locations that are kind of nostalgic oh, yeah. for God in that way. 
Um, so biblically speaking, there's some things like that. Probably the, the easiest one to mark is the idea in Genesis. I have just a few examples of this, and I hope this becomes a tool that people will use as they study. But in Genesis chapter three, um, when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, uh, the, the garden is, uh, it's in a land where the waters are flowing away. Uh, so a mountainous region. Growing up, I always pictured the garden like in some Paradise Valley somewhere, but uh, the garden's probably on a mountain. You know, you've got rivers flowing out of the garden. And then uh, as they leave the garden, because God drove them out because of their sin, if you look at Genesis 3, verse 24, uh, it says that God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So our first kind of geographical marker in our Bible study here is is east. Uh, and to go east is to go away from the presence of God. Now, can you think of um, any other stories in the book of Genesis that has east in mind? I haven't thought about this concept. So okay. I'm, I'm, li I'm with the audience here. I'm listening. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you look over in Genesis chapter 4, so, I mean, the very next chapter, we meet Cain and Abel, and they come and offer a sacrifice to God. Uh, God accepts Abel and his sacrifice. Uh, he has no regard for Cain and his offering. And then Cain, in jealousy, uh, in, in anger, he kills his brother Abel, and then God sends him away. Part of his punishment is that God sends him away. And as he leaves, it says in chapter 4, verse 16, and Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Adam and Eve leave the garden and they, they go east. And then Cain, when he leaves, he goes even further east. And then if you look over at Genesis chapter 11, uh, in verse 1, of course, this is after the flood, but we're still using the same kind of geographical markers. In Genesis 11, verse 1, they come off the ark, and it says the whole earth had one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So you've got this kind of this direction that has in view getting further and further away from God going east. Now, that's going to come into play when they build the tabernacle. Um, guess which direction the tabernacle faces? Well, the temple is going to face east. Yeah, and the tabernacle too. Uh, wherever they set up, they always have those kind of four corners, uh, and you had the tribes that were stationed around those those settings. Uh, the tabernacle always faced east, and the question is, well, well, why? And some people have thought, well, it has to do with the sun and things like that, and perhaps there's something of that. But I, I think that it kind of comes back to this idea in Genesis. Um, what was guarding the way back into the garden? There was the, was it the cherubim with the sword? Right, right. And so when you come back to the tabernacle or to the temple, now you're headed west. You know, if the, if the door faces east to go into the temple, the priest would have to go west. And what's meeting them there? All throughout the, the hangings of the tapestries within uh, the tabernacle and the temple, and of course, you've got the guardians there with the Ark of the Covenant itself. You had the cherubim. And so it was sort of like, going back into the presence of God, headed west, 
so that you could be with him in his dwelling place. So to enter into the tabernacle or the temple was sort of like a return to the garden paradise, but not not for long. You couldn't go in there and just kind of stay there. You had to go in there, offer sacrifice, and then leave. But that's just one of those things, if you're paying attention to geography or just basic points in the compass, east, north, west, those kinds of places have significance in the text. So have you, have you seen that sort of thing before? I've, I've noticed about like, you know, Cain going east and different things and the temple facing east, but I haven't given a, a whole lot of thought. So like I okay. said, the audience, I'm, I'm <laughs> listening in to see where it goes. Well, well here's, here's another one. Um, what about Bethel? This is not so much direction. It is an actual place. Um, can you think of a major story that takes place with Bethel in mind? Well, you've got Jacob and of course Bethel meaning the house of God. Right. Yeah. So so Jacob is leaving home and he's on his way to meet his his uncle and escape from Esau who's wanting to kill him and for good reason. Um but Jacob uh he rests on the way and has this dream where the Lord is speaking to him from heaven. There are the angels ascending and descending on this kind of ladder or staircase. And for the audience, this is Genesis 28. Yes, thank you. Um, and Genesis 28, verse 13, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in his place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. It was called Luz at the first. Of course, that just means house of God. El meaning God and, and Beth. You see like Bethlehem, uh, house of bread. So that's kind of the first significant story. But but that sort of creates this memory for the Bible readers. As, as we're kind of walking through the whole Bible story, Bethel has this significant moment where God says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take care of you. Do you think of when you think of Bethel? Are there any other Bible stories associated with Bethel? There are, but I'm trying to remember if <laughs> or not. Um, Jeroboam he sets up the calves at Dan, and isn't it Bethel? It is, yeah. And and just from just from that, if we kind of if you have a map, you can kind of see where Israel's in the north and Judah's in the south. Uh, Bethel is, is probably one of the lowest points yeah. in the southern uh, place of Israel, and Dan is far to the north. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of you know, set up boundaries. Right. The northern kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And so so you can, you're an easy access of these two idols. But with Bethel, um, that's supposed to be the house of God. And he sets up this golden calf. And in First Kings, uh, 12, where he sets this thing up. If you look um, in 1 Kings 12 and verse 26, 
Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, and the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's really concerned that the people are going to leave and go back south. Um, now, he'd been promised by the prophet Ahijah that God's going to give you this kingdom. But Jeroboam said, I'm going to take that myself and make sure that nobody, nobody leaves. So he yeah. says up these two calves of gold, verse 28. Uh, and he says to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Now, pause there for a second. If we have our map in mind, uh, Bethel is north or south of Jerusalem. It's north. It's north of, north of Jerusalem. And uh, so before we, before we leave the thing with the hides, let's just go back and read that. That when uh, God decided the house of David is going to lose the northern tribes. Right. Going to give them away. And the promise made to Hides back there uh, from the prophet in 1 Corinthians 11, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways, this is 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 38, and do what is right in my eyes and keeping my statutes and my commandments as my David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And he could have had that, but instead he starts thinking politically motivated and he's worried about Rehoboam getting influence. And then he goes off and uh, commits the sins of Jeroboam. Yes. Yeah. And, and ends up, becoming worse off than Solomon ever was. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so he sets up this this altar here then thinking politically how can he maintain control of the land? And so he sets up these golden calves uh in verse 29 of 1 Kings 12, one in Bethel, one in Dan. It became a sin to the people. They set up all these high places and he appoints a feast in verse 32 uh, on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. Uh, he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priest, the high place that he made, high high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now, as as they would come up to this altar, the whole point was that they would. Um, not turn back to Jerusalem to go and be with these gods. Um, so one one geographical point here uh, in verse 28, you have gone up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're north of Jerusalem, why would you ever say go up to Jerusalem? And so we were driving just the other day and I was reminding Bertina of the high altitude climb to certain sections is that I, I don't pay attention to that uh and it's easy to when you're riding in a car not if you're walking it makes a different big big difference if you're walking up a mountain or you're walking down a hill uh and that's where jerusalem is up in the mountains and so you are going up to jerusalem or down from jerusalem right. even if you're north of it yeah and you'll see this all throughout um 
the story uh, of Jesus going up to Jerusalem or going down from Jerusalem. That's just one of those geographical notes, uh, which has a connection back to the garden, really, um, the Garden of Eden, because again, the garden was on a mountain and God's making this dwelling place on his mountain. Isaiah 2, um, the mountain, uh, the house of the Lord being lifted up high above every other mountain. So there's kind of that picture uh, that gets us in mind of going back to paradise. But here, Jeroboam, he's in Bethel, sets up these altars. Um, now, if you go to the altar today, uh, they actually know where the altar is. And they've uncovered, they've excavated uh, the altar of Jeroboam, and they've excavated uh, steps. The steps are on the south side of the altar, which means they'd have to move north to go up to the altar to sacrifice. So they're facing away from Jerusalem. Their backs are turned to the house of God, and they're facing this altar to sacrifice. And it's just one of those those things that helps you to see um, the story. They are turning their backs literally on God in order to worship this idol. Um, so Dan and Bethel, house of God, uh, one of those kind of nostalgic places where God had intended to bless his people, and now they're turning their backs on him. Of course, with the golden calves. I mean, this is almost like going back to Egypt. Um, speaking of Egypt, uh, Egypt is super significant in the Bible. Um, obviously, Egypt significant for the Exodus. So when you think of Egypt, generally in the Bible story, what, what comes to mind? Oh, the bondage over the people first, and then the, the contest and getting the people delivered. And then later, uh, towards the end of, the, uh, of Judah, uh, when people are relying on Egypt uh, against the Babylonians or something and looking to the wrong place for strength. And, and of course, throughout the wilderness, you, you have, instead of the Israelites looking forward to the land of milk and honey that God promised them, and he'll be their God, their people, they keep talking about Egypt. Yes. And, and, yes. It, and it's also interesting that their view of Egypt morphs. So kind of in the beginning, it would have been better to die in Egypt than die out here. Uh, yes. And then later, oh, we remember all the good food in Egypt. It was free. Yeah, you, you were slave labor. <laughs> and then all oh, let's appoint you know a captain and take us back to Egypt. Yeah, and how quickly they forgot. A lot like Lot's why just look yes. direction. Now, and speaking of Lot, um, Egypt is a, is symbolic for bondage. Yeah, but it also becomes a sort of placeholder for uh, doing what's right in my own eyes. And it and it was that way even before the story of Exodus. So look back at Genesis thirteen. Uh, just, I'm just recently beginning to uncover this. Uh, I've been studying Exodus a lot and seeing kind of the connections to Egypt throughout the Bible story. And we see it in Jeroboam's story. But again, the kind of the nostalgia that's built into the, the story of Israel, uh, it, it helps them to see their future and their relationship with God so much more clearly. With Lot, uh, in Genesis 13, remember Lot had come to the promised land with his uncle Abram and Sarai, and they're both wealthy. 
Uh, I often kind of thought growing up that here's Abraham and Sarah and they're a cute little couple in their little tent um, with a few sheep. They had like an entourage, like they had hundreds of men, lots of livestock. Lot's got a ton of livestock himself. And so there's not enough land between them. So uh, Abraham says to Lot, why don't you choose where you want to go and you take your stuff and I'll, I'll take my stuff elsewhere. So where does Lot want to go? Lot ends up going towards uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but I think it refers to him looking east, doesn't it? Yeah, he, he looks, um, verse 10, lifted up his eyes and, uh, and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Uh, and it does say in verse 11 that he journeyed east. So that's like, wait a minute, where, where are you going, Lot? You're going further and further away from God's promises. But check out the way the Jordan Valley is described in verse 10 of Genesis 13. It's, it says it's like the garden of the Lord. Uh, and it's like the land of Egypt. So here is Lot trying to get the best out of the land. And he's going to go to a place that looks like paradise. Now, he links, the, the, the Bible writer here, Moses, links paradise with the land of Egypt. Um, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? Well, they took what they thought was right in their own eyes. You know, Eve looked at the fruit, saw that it was good for food, which she, it's the first time anyone has ever said that's good, except for God in the story. Uh, in Genesis, it's always God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good. And here Eve says, well, I think this is good and yep. takes it. Right. And you've got that same thing happening here with Lot where he says, I like that. I see it. I'm going there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of this back in the Garden of Eden thing, but it's also very much like Egypt because Egypt becomes this sort of, I think this looks good. I'm going to, I'm going to take it. Um, so it's like the land of Egypt. Of course, he goes down there and we read in verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So appearances aren't everything. Yeah. And sometimes and we take, forget. Same with Eve taking the fruit and with Lot. Yeah. Now, follow that track here. Um, Abraham's going to end up going to Egypt. In fact, at the end of chapter 12, he went to Egypt because there was a famine. And you almost have a, a miniature exodus in Genesis 12 because there's a famine in the land. Now, later at the end of Genesis, there's going to be a famine. And Abraham's family is going to end up in Egypt. Same thing with Abraham here. He goes to Egypt. Um, they're mistreated uh, because Pharaoh takes Sarah. Of course, Abraham lies about that. And that's that's part of the story. He's not guiltless here. But as Pharaoh takes Sarah in verse 17 of Genesis 12, the Lord afflicts his house with great plagues. Kind of sounds familiar yep. <laughs> to Exodus. Um, and then he sends them out with great possessions. Yeah, plagues. Yeah. And so they, he, he leaves with all this stuff. Um, and he's not the hero here. You know, God's the hero, just like in the story of the Exodus with Israel. So you've got a miniature Exodus. But then later in Genesis uh, 16, Sarai gets the idea, look, I can't have kids. So why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar? Now, where is Hagar from? She Egyptian? I can't remember. 
Yeah. She's, yeah, yeah, she's from Egypt. She is an Egyptian, yeah. So it's like, hmm, you know, God's plan is just not working out quite right. I'll do what I think is right. And it's kind of like a going back to Egypt. Egypt becomes the symbol of doing what's right in my own eyes. And then later, of course, uh, in First Kings, coming back to Solomon and Jeroboam, um, Solomon, how, how would you describe the reign of Solomon? Solomon, he starts off so wise and he's given so much wisdom. But James, echoing his brother Jesus, says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. With all of his wisdom, so Proverbs, with words of wisdom for your young man, and then his son will be Rehoboam, right. who is a great fool. And with all the warnings in Proverbs about strange women. A thousand wives. Yeah, yeah. And so he doesn't follow the wisdom that he that he had. Right. Just like James 1 says, it doesn't do any good. It's like, if you don't pay attention to what you see, it doesn't do any good. So he, he starts off really well following God's wisdom and then abandons God to do, yep. again, what's right in his own eyes. Now, in 1 Kings, if you look at chapter 6 in verse 1, it's kind of an odd odd placement of such a kind of factoid in first Kings six and verse one says in the 480th year after the people of israel came out of the land of egypt in the fourth year solomon's reign over israel in the month of ziv which is the second month he began to build the house of the lord now i've looked at this passage a number of times throughout the years to look and see okay how can i how can i think through the chronology of events that got us here because we can kind of count backward 480 years and get to where we need to be to figure out how long the the exodus took and the conquest and all of that but probably more significant than that is this is setting us up to remember oh yeah this is the story of egypt this is the story of the exodus of israel and and in a way this is kind of saying that this is the end of the exodus if you look forward a few chapters at first kings 8 Solomon has dedicated the temple to God. And in 1 Kings 8, verse 56, he says, Blessed be the Lord who's given rest to his people, Israel. Well, that was something that was promised Moses and Joshua. Rest to the people. 1 Kings 8, 56, according to all that God promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And if you continue to read 57 through 61, it sounds a lot like Deuteronomy. It's stuff like, let your heart be wholly true, you know, keep the commandments, keep the statutes and rules. Uh, God may maintain the cause of his servant, the cause of his people, Israel. I mean, it's very, very much like Deuteronomy. And this is setting up the story so that we think of Solomon in light of the Exodus. But now look at the way Solomon is going to sound here. In First Kings chapter 9, uh, look at, um, oh, look at verse... 16. Do you want to read uh, 16 through 19 here? Sure. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured uh, Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. 
So Solomon rebuilt Gezer in Lower Beth Horon and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the stores cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the lands of his dominion. It's really subtle here, but if you kind of keep tracking with the story and read what we know Solomon later back into this, uh, first of all, Solomon's married to... Pharaoh's uh, daughter. That doesn't sound great. No. <laughs> um, also, what is he building in verse 19? Store cities. Now, that's a relatively rare word in the Bible. Um, there was another king who had in for, like forced labor build store cities. It was Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter one. Uh, and what is Solomon multiplying for himself? Chariots. And, he's, be uh, yeah, he's, well. be he's becoming like a new, uh, new Pharaoh here. Uh, this whole story is setting Solomon up someone who's doing what's right in his own eyes uh, as this new kind of tyrant king in Israel. In fact, Israel is going to become like the new Egypt. Uh, in 1 Kings 10, in verse 26, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, which Deuteronomy 17 said not to do. Uh, he must not acquire many horses, it says. And Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, you shall never return to Egypt, but they do so they can get more horses. Uh, Solomon is really being pictured here as this new kind of Pharaoh, and Israel's now sort of the face of this Egypt figure. Um, they're preying on another people, and the people themselves need a new Moses. And here's the funny thing. Um, they get a new Moses. Jeroboam kind of becomes like their Moses. Um, he escapes Israel and then he comes back and he pleads before the king, Rehoboam, and he basically says, let my people go. <laughs> and it's this, this whole kind of geographical marker that's placed into the story to help us to see what's happening with Israel. How bad had Israel gotten? They were like the new Egypt. Uh, they had become the very thing that God had delivered them from. Where do you have Jeroboam pleading with Rehoboam? That's in First Kings uh, chapter 12. And uh, in verse, verse 2, as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, uh, he had heard that Rehoboam had become king. He returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him in verse 3. And they're talking with him about their forced labor. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he's part of that whole entourage saying, hey, yeah. can, you, can you lighten our loads a little bit? Lighten it up, yeah. <laughs> so he becomes like this new Moses figure. Of course, he fails because he sets up the golden calf. So it's it's an interesting way that God uses these places and figures to help us uh, think through the story better. So I guess... It's a bit Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, and then blaming other people oh, and... Yeah. So so there are some some other places like that throughout the Bible story, and we could kind of just go on and on and, and see them. But I guess the thing that I want to encourage our listeners to do today is when you're studying the places where events happen, it matters. 
and usually if a place is mentioned, you'll see that place mentioned elsewhere and you can use a map or better still, you can use a concordance. People still have concordances today. You can just look it up on online, uh, Blue Letter Bible or some places like that. And you can, you can look up that place name and see how that place was significant um, throughout the Bible story. Um, I don't know, can, can you think of other places? Is that other places that you find significant in the Bible story? Well, Egypt is going to be, uh, if I remember correctly, later in the Minor Prophets, it was the idea of you know, not returning like in your hearts to Egypt. Or then Babylon, the next place that the Jews are gonna be captive, you'll see that repeated type of language in the New Testament. Right. Uh, like in First Peter 5, where it says they in Babylon. Uh, that's probably not a reference to the, the ruins of Babylon, but Rome. Uh, right. And in Revelation 17, uh, the great prostitute that's drunk on the blood of the saints is absolutely the city of Rome. Uh, it says in the middle of chapter 17, you know, the beast she's riding has seven heads. Those are the seven mountains she sits on. Or just Google what city is most famous for sitting on seven hills, although a number are. The one most famous one is Rome. The right. end of the chapter says the great city, that this woman is the great city. Uh, and by the way, uh, this is really cool. I'll mention it in just a second. Uh, it's a coin that really illustrates that chapter. But the harlot back at the beginning, Rome, it's Babylon. Right. Babylon harlot. So it's, it's Babylon comes in to stand for kind of what Egypt had long uh, stood for. I was going to mention this coin. I just found it uh, within the last year or so. It's really cool. Uh, Google Vespasian coin and rome and seven hills hmm. it's uh it's a coin that when when the christians in the seven churches received the letter from john some of them perhaps might have had this coin in their pocket you know some of them might at least be familiar with it on the back of the coin is roma a woman rome sitting right. sitting on seven hills. Is that right? Yeah, boom, boom, you can count it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it says Roma, and there she is, the woman sitting on seven hills. Wow. So when they read, you know, uh, the, the seven hills are, the, you know, the, the seven heads are the seven mountains or hills that the woman is sitting on. Wow. In great city. That would have been very clear and vivid. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. They would have known exactly what they were talking about. Wow. Yeah, that, that that almost makes it like uh, not so mysterious <laughs> what John's saying. He's like, "Oh, who's he talking about?" And you take out your coin, like, of course he's talking about Rome. Um, yeah, one one other fun one, and then uh, that may be all we have time for today. But Isaiah seven, um, Isaiah's a book. It's a really big book, and there's just a lot going on in it, and. Um, I found that unless you really sit down and, and start studying carefully through Isaiah, we almost kind of like pick up our favorite passages and we don't know the whole story, but pla places have a significance in Isaiah too. And if you can kind of follow the thread, it helps to tie things together. But early on in Isaiah's ministry in chapter seven, 
he's told to go up and meet King Ahaz in verse three, uh, because Ahaz is king of Judah. And during his reign, Israel and Syria, both nations to the north, had kind of banded together and they're going to attack Judah. And Judah and King Ahaz are all, all, in a, a, all upset because they think they're going to be destroyed. And so the Lord says to Isaiah in Isaiah 7, verse 3, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Remaliah. So he goes to the specific location and he tells Ahaz, don't be afraid. The Lord's going to fight for you. All you got to do is just wait and watch him. And Ahaz kind of turns his back on God here and says, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, years later, if you look over at chapter 36, uh, when Assyria comes in and they take out Syria, they take out Israel, and now they're coming down to Judah. In Isaiah 36, in verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. It's the exact same location where Isaiah had met Ahaz and Ahaz said, no, I don't want God's help. And here they've got the king of Assyria's right-hand man coming saying, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> and, and so you, you've got that geographical place where God brings the story full circle. So as we're reading God's word, um, yes, these places are real. Uh, these stories really happen. These are true events. But also God's weaving the story together so that we begin to connect certain points with certain places. Um, there are a number of other places like that, but I've just I've found that if you if you think, oh, that place sounds familiar, pause in your Bible study, look it up, and go, oh, whoa, that's what happened here before. I bet that's similar to what's happening here now, and you'll see a connection that'll help the story to come alive. So all right, Scott, you got any other other thoughts before we close up for the day? of this coin and show it to folks yeah but when i have tried on our new format i usually can't do that but let me just see if i can all right can you see my entire screen i can oh okay can you see this yes okay so there's our harlot of revelation 17. And here's the coin. This is the Sestertius coin of Vespasian. Wow. From the British Museum. And uh, there's Roma. And uh, compared to Revelation, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads, drunk with the blood of the saints. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, is seated. The woman is the great city that reigns over, the, has dominion over the kings of the earth. And there's the hills. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about the, the coin. That's really cool. I did not either until within the last year. I stumbled across that. Yeah. About it. And it's just it's helpful to note that these things 
the, the stories happening in real places. And so like, as you're reading about judgment coming on these cities, well, it's not always anything significant about that particular city, but if you kind of take out a map, you can go, oh, he's continuing to move closer and closer to this judgment on Jerusalem, perhaps. And you can kind of track with that. There, there are places like that in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, again, locations, the, the seven churches of Asia there. Um, the, oh, let me, let me pull this one up. Let me go back. Uh, some of the other references while I'm pulling this up, uh, do you recall some references in those little mini letters to the churches that relate particularly to the city? That if you know something about the city, it made it particularly. Oh, yeah, I know Laodicea. Um, it, you know, by ointment, right? Wasn't it something about buying ointment for your eyes? Yeah. And. If I can find this. Oh, yeah. here we go. All right. Um, so let me hit share screen again. And you remember Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Let me see if I can get this. All right. Can you see my entire screen? Mm, not yet. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> oh, well, there was, uh, we're about to run short of time. Uh, look it up. Uh, look up Pergamum in Wikipedia. And it was the first place in Asia that they were allowed to put up a temple for Caesar worship. Oh, wow. So yeah. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Back in the days of Augustus, they put up a, a temple there for the worship of Caesar. Wow. Yeah. And it's stuff like that. Um, you don't have to know that sort of thing to be able to know the Lord and know how to please him, know how to be saved. But it really does, I think, enrich our Bible study and our appreciation of the story uh, and make relevant connections to our lives. So uh, really appreciate the discussion today, Scott, and help me thinking through some of that. Um, keep looking for stuff like that. And uh, if you found this helpful, please share it with others. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, and, and you can feel free to request future studies and discussions at BibleQuest.tv. Thanks for joining in. Uh, God be with you. And if he's willing, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Joseph.